0: For more information, visit www.novic.co. This episode is brought to you by Pragma. Pragma is a backend game engine founded by the engineering leaders who built the platforms for some of the largest live service games, including League of Legends, Fortnite, Destiny 2, and Plants vs. Zombies 2. Pragma powers services like accounts, matchmaking, and player data for the world's most ambitious live service games. The pragma backend game engine is the only solution that is truly extensible so that game designers aren't blocked by clumsy black box designs with pragma studios no longer need to hire a large back-end team and get the ultimate peace of mind that their game will always be ready to scale to learn more simply head to pragma.gg or check out the link in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by Coda Payments. Game developers building their free-to-play monetization strategy have a daunting task when considering security, payment methods, user experience, and global expansion. I'm here today with Neil Davidson, executive chairman at Coda Payments. Neil, how has Coda Payments helped games teams drive greater success?
1: We like to say we help mobile game developers think outside the app when it comes to monetization. That's because outside the app, they can collect payments from their players at half the cost or less of doing so through the app stores. Shop is our global marketplace for game currency and in-game items, trusted by tens of millions of gamers around the world. And developers that want to accept payments outside the app on their own websites can use Pay, which allows them to support hundreds of local payment methods globally with a single integration. Whether our partner leverages Coda Pay, Coda Shop, or any of our other solutions, we offer local market insights, provide live local language customer support, ensure tax compliance, and manage fraud risks. If your listeners are interested in retaining more of the revenue they generate, I hope they'll get in touch with us at Coda.
0: Awesome. Thanks for sharing, Neil. And if you, our listener, are interested in learning more about how Coda Payments solutions can take your game to the next level, head to codapayments.com or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, let's dive into the weekly roundtable.
2: Hi, friends. Welcome to the Roundtable. Today, I'm joined by Aaron Bush, co-founder of NAVIC, and Dave Elton, president at Blue Line Studios. And I'm filling in as host Maria Gillis. I work at Pixion Games because Devin is enjoying the fantastic Korea Blockchain Week. Hello, folks.
0: Howdy. Welcome back to the host seat, Maria.
2: Oh, my gosh. I miss your howdies, Aaron. This is such a throwback. <laughs> I need your howdies in my life. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they sneak out occasionally. I guess being in Texas does that too, yeah.
2: So yeah, today we're hitting on so many different topics. We're looking at Data AI's report. Um, in the last episode, there was some discussion that, about the PlayStation Plus price increase, but because it came in so hot, we decided to give more fresh takes that had time to simmer today. Um, we're talking about the Starfield launch and so many other great topics. So let's get jumping in. Aaron, what's up with Data AI?
0: Yeah, so I just want to give a quick plug and shout out to our partners at Data.ai. They recently published their 2023 Gaming Spotlight Report, and it's absolutely worth checking out. It is really mobile-focused, of course, and walks through current gaming trends mobile games that have defined the year so far, mobile ad monetization trends, uh, so much of, of that I found interesting, and more. And for those interested in checking out this report, uh, we'll leave a link in the show notes. And we'll also be promoting it again in Novic Digest um, sooner than later as well. So you'll probably see it pop up there. Um, and yeah, we might even bring someone from data.ai to, to talk about it uh, sometime too. So, um, still seeing how all that's shaken up. But for, for the time being, definitely recommend just scrolling down to the show notes and checking out that report. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it.
2: Um, I'm not sponsored by uh, Data AI, so my my praise it does come from the heart, very genuine. <laughs> as is yours, Erin. As is yours. Um so I actually read the report. Um, it was really good. And it's nice to see I read every report and it's nice to see the the industry um going back to growth. And honestly, data AI's um, materials have just been really good lately. So I've also read today the ASO. Um, key insights it's just become a tool to level up knowledge across different subjects so yeah props to data.ai keep them keep them coming because i'm reading them all right we'll jump to playstation plus that's also you aaron take four
0: i'm on a roll uh, this early part of the episode um so yeah before we move on to completely fresh topics i did want to hit on um Hit on this topic that last week's crew mentioned, but was puzzled by a bit and didn't really dig into too much, which is why did PlayStation raise its subscription prices for all of the different PlayStation Plus tiers? And um, I think the answer is actually very simple. It's just because they can. This is what happens when tens of millions of users are locked into a dominant platform. It gives that platform pricing power. Um, meaning it can raise prices with minimal financial negativity. And in this place, if it's raising prices 20 to 30, 33%, it's not going to lose anything close to 20%, 30% of its subscriber base because they're locked in. Um, and therefore, PlayStation's profitability increases. The other question was why right now? Especially since this market has just been flagged um, for antitrust concerns with the Xbox and Activision deal. And well, if I had to to guess, PlayStation did not raise prices earlier because if it had, it would have shown regulators that a stronger Xbox is still not really a threat to PlayStation's leading position in pricing power. But now that regulators have made up their minds about Xbox and Activision and approved the deal, PlayStation doesn't have to look weaker to sway regulators and judges, so it can now it can now flex. Um, and I guess lastly, well, I do personally think that it's kind of lame to have to pay a premium just to access multiplayer. Uh, raising prices is normal, <laughs> and honestly, you know what they raise prices to, especially the premium tiers, is a bit more in line with Xbox. The base tier is going from essentially five dollars a month to six dollars and sixty cents a month and even the most premium tier being $13 a month. I know this the prices differ by region I think a little bit, but you know, that's not crazy. And if you look at the success of you know, a video subscription company like Netflix regularly raising prices as the value of the service increase, increases and as inflation hits, that's kind of the way that it's supposed to work at least from a business end. So, really from my point of view, it's kind of a non-story. And what it really just shows is that PlayStation is a good business that has real competitive advantages. And the platform should not be complacent and obviously should be working to innovate and grow the value of those subscriptions. But bottom line, most people are going to stick with PlayStation and PlayStation will now have more money to work with.
2: I have three uh, additions to why I believe why now. One is raise the price before Black Friday. I'm a locked in user and I always renew on Black Friday because it's cheaper annually. And so I, I honestly don't care about the price increase. I'm going to keep paying it because I play PlayStation most days. Uh, the second one is to raise the, the prices before the, the portal, I think that's what it's called, the portal is released. And maybe also a bundle that's rumored potentially to come with the Christmas season. And the third, do it when most people are also raising prices because you can, then you can use the macro and it doesn't come as a surprise because at least here in the UK, things are starting to come down price-wise. And so if they were to do this next year, they would be doing it isolated.
3: Yeah. And I think the main thing I think is, as Aaron and well, actually it's both of you rightly had, I think people have been able to see what the value is. And now Sony said, okay, everyone understands what we're offering. Let's raise the prices up now that everyone understands that it's a. I think it's a really good deal, um, especially you know if you're coming from a parent's perspective, you've got a huge library of games, you know, same sort of uh, value proposition as the Xbox Game Pass, and you know people can go ahead and and try out a whole bunch of uh, different flavors of games as it is.
2: Yeah, it's all because we say this as. Uh, analyzing what happened and me as a player that's exactly what happened i got a taste for it and now you can increase the price unless it's you know above 20 pounds i that's my price elasticity i still pay it because it's worth it
0: are you a subscriber to the premiums here maria
2: is a premium the one that has cloud i'm the one just below
0: (laughs) <laughs> i forget the names honestly that's kind of yeah. like the bad part of their tears no one remembers the names of any of it because they're all you know just kind of random and change and such but yeah okay cool you, yeah, you're the middle I'm the, tier.
2: I'm the average average tier is my tier
0: i, I think it's i'm average I think I'm in the below average tier. If, if that makes you feel any better, Maria. So enjoy your premium experience. Yay.
2: All right. We'll uh, carry on then to the next topic. And this is with you, Dave.
3: Thank you. Yes. Um... So uh, I'm sure everyone's aware at this point that the, uh, both the actors and the screenwriters are on strike uh, in terms of in regards to the film industry. Um, but the national board of the SAG, AFTRA uh, announced that they've um, given strike authorization to its members uh, for working in video games. Now, this doesn't mean that they're able to go on strike right now. Uh, members uh, of the Screen Actors Guild uh, we will need to put a vote to it. And I believe that they're, um, they have until September 25th to put in their votes. Um, but this isn't the first time, though, the, the actors have gone on strike. So if you think back uh, a number of years, uh, the actors are actually on strike for quite a long period of time, from October 2016 to November of 2017. Um, and, uh, it was actually probably the lie, I believe it was the longest strike that, uh, SAG after after it actually ever had, um, somewhere around 340 days. Um, that one was, uh, I I think a little contentious in terms of what the response was from the video game industry, because part of what they were looking for at that point were things like residuals. Uh, for their performances, something that you know the actual creators of the video games weren't receiving. So it was uh, seemed a little frustrating in terms of that the the actors performers were looking for residuals from the games. This time around, I think they've taken. I think the probably a case of they have a better understanding of what the video game industry is like, how it is that uh, you know teams function, how revenue gets split up amongst everybody. Um, but if the strike does go ahead, um, then they're looking to be going into uh, an agreement with, uh, they have a select number of companies that they set uh, the agreement with. And those include things like, or companies like Activision, Electronic Arts, Epic, uh, Insomniac, Take-Two, uh, Warner Brother Games, uh, publishers where you definitely see a lot of, um, you know, uh, IP with the actors involved in uh, the strike. Uh, the potential for the strike only affects uh, the, the performers. It doesn't affect the uh, the voice actors. Um, the voice actors are covered under a separate agreement, uh, and that's not under a contention at this moment. But um, but for the for the performers themselves, um, honestly, I think they're looking for a lot of the same things that they're looking in terms of their agreements on the film side of things, uh, sort of increase in terms of uh, pay, um, they're looking for protection from uh, the use of artificial intelligence inside games, uh, and some I think some realistic things in terms of uh, making sure that um, you know medics are on set if they're doing dangerous stunts or any sort of stunt work uh, that people get appropriate breaks when they're performing. Um, but I think one of the key things again is that is the AI component. Um, now inside games, it's you know. It's been pretty easy for people to capture the likeness of an actor or actress, or a celebrity talent performer, and be able to bring that into a game um, and have multiple uses, you know, across multiple titles. Um, and depending on how those agreements are structured, uh, there's the fear that companies could misuse that ability. Uh, There was a story of um, one actor who performed, you know, had a performance for one particular title uh, and then was informed by a friend of theirs that they actually showed up inside a different game um, than what they were actually uh, contracted for. Um, and, you know, those are the types of fears that people have, you know, being able to capture someone's likeness, be it, uh, you know, either what their image is or through their voice and being able to use that multiple times with any sort of compensation, I think, is one of the main concerns. Um, you know, inside the film industry, you hear stories of people being told, hey, you're going to be a background actor. And by the way, we need you to go over there and have a photogrammetry session done of you. Uh, there's the worry about well you know they've come in they've been paid once but then the studio is able to use them multiple times they just want to make sure that that's the same case in uh, in the video game space that uh, anytime their likeness is used or their voice is used that that they will get compensation for that um, uh, each and every time that they're used so yeah um, Interestingly enough the last time that there was a strike resulted in the contract that has now run out and is now in and now has the, the uh, actors in the uh, strike position again so it'll be interesting to see at the uh, as we get closer to the end of the month as to whether or not the strike is authorized uh, by all of the members of the Screen Actors Guild uh, and if they end up adding uh, adding that to the uh, the number of strikes that are going on, um, it'll also be interesting to see how many people this actually affects. So if you think of indie companies, they don't use uh, Screen Actor Guild members in order to do their voiceovers or you know, or motion capture or things like that. So um, you know, this is something that will more likely just affect the larger Companies, but at the same time, as we see more and more celebrities being brought in to advertise games to be part of games, um, you know, the, I think the potential impact starts to become larger and larger. Though, so even though there may be companies that aren't part of the negotiation teams, they may still get uh, affected by you know actors not wanting to do work in solidarity with uh, with those that are working with the aforementioned companies.
0: Yeah, I have mixed feelings about all of this (laughs) in general. Um, On one hand, you know, some of much of what these people are asking for in the strike is totally fair and I think should be respected. Like the health benefits, more fair residuals, the, you know, when stunts are performed, that there's safety measures, the whole, you know, better rules around, you know, using people's likeness. Like all of that makes a ton of sense. And also part of it too is just, as especially like as the structure of video has changed with like streaming services compared to what it used to be with TV, like just like new structures demand like changes into how contracts are structured, um, and so it makes a lot of sense to revisit that. Um, you know, the problem though with strikes like this, and even strikes we saw a decade ago elsewhere, like walk on Wall Street, <laughs> if any of any of you remember that, is that. As momentum builds and as these strikes grow, the demands expand and they become less focused. And therefore, they become harder and harder to agree with in any type of like real practical way. Um, and, you know, so in the case of this strike, even though there are some fair demands that would help fix the system, there are also demands that don't make sense. Like writers want firm limits on the way artificial intelligence can be used if it's around their likeness specifically around like them the actor maybe that makes sense but basically everything else they're asking for makes no sense whatsoever it's just uh you know like trying to put their foot down in the face of like innovation and progress in some kind of way and so like in the same way it would not have made sense for you know, like groups like this to protest like new types of cameras in the past or virtual effects in the past. It does not make sense for them to um, like put demands around artificial intelligence and the use of like movies and TV and potentially games as well. Um, And, you know, also, you know, what we see in the market really is a result of supply and demand. There are... Way more good actors and writers than there are spots for them, which is a sad reality, but the the market rates very much reflect that. And you know maybe the minimum rates should be higher, I don't know, or at least something structurally changed. but even so, that doesn't fundamentally change like the core economics that are at play that lead to these strikes every time a contract, you know, the broader contracts go um they 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 expire. um and so, you know, I think that these contracts kind of invo- uh, ignore meritocracy and kind of built for the lowest common denominator, which is good for some people, holds others back, but it's kind of hard to build systems around. And so when I see the news that maybe the strike will now extend to video games, part of me shakes my head, and I'm sure there's some merit to improvements that can be made in the video game industry, absolutely. Um, but you know, yet again, this is a strike with growing demands that would become less focused and therefore harder to agree with. And also video games are just different from video. And so if, you know, it's harder when it's, you know, filming and you're filming actual people, you know, but in video games, it actually would probably accelerate the use of artificial intelligence and the things that these people don't want to happen. Um, and so I think that if you know it gets unionized and gets played the wrong way it could actually backfire on the people who want the change the most when it comes to gaming so yeah i don't i don't think it'll impact the games industry nearly as much as it's impacted elsewhere in entertainment but yeah some good some bad but really at a risk of just becoming more unfocused the longer this goes on in my view
2: i'm sorry but i really want to challenge that view because I won't discuss the usual progression of a strike, that it grows in demands, negotiations, you know, things get um, put to the side. I don't want to discuss that. I think that's, that's a fair assessment. I think it would be a shame if we don't see consequences coming from the strike on the industry. The demands are fair. You as your person should um, be compensated wherever your data, in air quotes, is used, likeness, like whatever it is, motion capture, animation. If you were paid to do a job and the contract was for a specific usage, if it's used elsewhere, you should be compensated for, for your work. And I understand the apprehension, like especially it's om- even though you have a contract, you have to trust who you're working with because you don't have access to their internal systems. Maybe someone who did the motion capture left. Someone new joins, they see that data and they, they think, oh, this is fine to use. I'm just going to put it in a prototype and then the prototype is released and there's your your um, data and your work being used. And also with the usage of AI, I think if AI wants to be applied, fair enough, but it has to be disclosed when you're doing the contract with the create whoever doing the creation. Uh, whether it's the acting, the voice acting, um, the writing, because it affects your creative work and your name is going to be on it. Like, I wouldn't want to write a script and then I appear in the credits and uh, I'm the person who did it and then it's changed by AI and there's nothing in credits um, or me being told that is going to be altered, you know? I think it's really fair and I do hope change comes from it because it makes sense.
0: Yeah, I don't think I disagree with anything that you just said. There's a lot that is fair here. I think what I'm really trying to point out is that the more momentum and people and groups that kind of get behind movements like this historically it kind of lead to it losing focus um and no longer standing for some like one main thing in particular. And it just becomes harder to agree with as a whole um, when more and more demands get thrown in some of which makes sense but some of them some of them don't so like even with ai specifically i think that if it's leveraging someone's likeness having demands around that makes a ton of sense but having demands around ai as a whole and whether it should be used or not whether it like if it's not about someone's likeness and it's just about just if ai can write and compete with people or if ai can voice act and compete with people um a lot of it is these people just trying to project, protect the future of jobs. And I think maybe there's something to that, but it's different from from likeness. And some of it, if it just gets in the way of progress of technology as a whole, um, I don't think that's the right move. And especially if it gets conflated with all the other issues, I think that might harm their case more than that help honestly i'm pretty optimistic that this will get sorted out in a matter of time and it'll actually be improvements for them and probably a lot of these technological concessions will fade is my guess but um uh, but yeah that, that's kind of the nuance and what you're saying i would add
3: yeah i think um so I can use probably a, a sample case here as to where I think some of the potential challenges and where where people are thinking uh, of things going. Um, so if you think back to to so Harry Potter and you have your your lead actors and actresses from the film series, and um, you know if you if you were able to capture the main actors and actresses when they started, So they're year one and you're able to capture their full likeness, capture, do voice capture at that point. You then would be able to create, theoretically, a whole wide variety of materials around year one of Harry Potter. And, you know, rather than, you know, having to try and figure out, well, how do we take actors as they are today, de-age them or try and, you know, figure out how they can... Uh, capture them and then change what their appearances are and/or or mannerisms are, so that it matches when they were children. But if you were then able to capture, you know, the the actors as they were year one, and then be able to use them for decades, from a creator's perspective, you know, that's fantastic. That means I have always have access to that. From a performer's perspective, it's like, well but am I going to be compensated for that every time you use them? Um, especially as with the advances of uh, being able to do vo- voice alteration, you could end up with somebody, you know, creating a full performance of, um, you know, of one of the actors, like, uh, you know, Rupert, all of a sudden, you know, you've, you've got him playing uh, for decades, uh, all under the control of the game studio or the film studio, rather than under the actor's control. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the main worries, you know, from a creator's perspective, I'm like, that's fantastic. You know, I could be able to use that to be able to generate, continue to generate content. I personally would hope that I would want to be, you know, continue to compensate the actor for their original performance as well as for c- continuing use of them. But that's not how things are, are structured right now. And I think that's one of the the main worries that you can recreate them for forever.
0: Great. Well, we will continue to monitor how the strike progresses and how the gaming world gets sucked into it or not. But in a more immediate topic, however, let's talk about what is probably the most anticipated launch of 2023. And that would be Starfield. Uh, Also, I'll just quickly note that Maria is having technical difficulties. So Dave and I will take it from here. But Starfield. Yeah, so this has been a big week with Starfield finally out for launch after years of people patiently waiting for this game. And even though some reviews are all over the place and even some are quite critical, uh, really, the reviews as a whole are holding up really well, such as the game maintaining an 88 metascore, which is quite strong. Also, anecdotally, it seems like this game is much less of a buggy launch compared to um, some previous Bethesda games, so you can see the polish that that went into you know making sure this game was ready for prime time. Um, and of course, you know from the biggest factor of this game from our business of gaming perspective is that it's the first major Bethesda game and triple A game of its type to find itself in the middle of Xbox's current hybrid sales strategy, where some people are going to buy the game outright. And some people will play through Game Pass. Um, and maybe this game will even help sell some consoles. And so the question, you know, is how exactly will this game move the needle? And how could that influence how Xbox manages these types of releases in the future? Um, and because Xbox has a bit of a have your cake and eat it too strategy uh, <laughs> right now, it's uh, it'll be interesting to see how the numbers shake out. Because on one hand, the game's premium edition was for sale before the game even came to Game Pass. And the enormous pre-sales from that likely helped Xbox rec- recuperate some of its costs quickly. And we'll hopefully see some, some more data on that soon. And then, of course, there's all sorts of data on how Xbox console sales have accelerated in the past week, too. And so that's probably going to be a bit more of a, of a shorter-term blip from this launch. But, you know, good for Xbox to see that. But, of course, the more interesting question... Is how will this launch impact Game Pass? And given that growth was actually pretty flat for Game Pass recently, in um, the next quarter or two, we should get a pretty good view on how this launch turbocharged signups or not. And then we can start doing you know all the math um, around it. But you know, kind of before diving into that, I just kind of wanted to pause and you know hear your just early impressions of the game if you've played it or seen things, and then. Also just curious to hear your thoughts on um, this game's impact on Game Pass as a whole.
3: Well, I've certainly been following the launch, um, but I'll be playing it on Game Pass. So it, I didn't get the, uh, the early access. Um, I do think that, uh, yeah, I think it's actually, by the sounds of it, like a really good launch for Bethesda from the people that have played it. Um, certainly anecdotally getting a lot of the same feedback. Uh, some people, you know, the very first few hours have been, well, I'm not really sure what's going on here. But, you know, the more they get into it, the more that they feel like, hey, this is actually uh, something phenomenal for them to play through. Um, and certainly I've not seen the number of bugs and complaints about the game as I have seen for a number of other Bethesda launches or experience for uh, Bethesda launches. Um but very much looking forward to, to diving into it uh, now that it's uh, in uh, in general release. Um, certainly, I, I do expect that it will drive some additional signups for uh, for Game Pass. Um, for me, I think the really big question for Microsoft as a whole is: can they follow up? Can they, you know, really use this as the beginning of? Um, you know a number of first-party titles to help drive the business forward. Um, you know, I, it, and I think this is if they're not able to do that, then I think they've got some challenges in terms of trying to you know continue to to claw their their way up in terms of percentage uh, of market share. Um, and I think it really does. You know, is that is it is that key indicator in terms of how well is the pass going to? Uh, work for the company overall. If they're not able to bring in that constant uh, wave of first-party titles to help bolster it, um, I think they're going to find uh, some more challenges in that area.
0: Yeah, I I completely agree with that. I do think it will move the needle for Game Pass um, pretty immediately. I don't know. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see, is it going to be like a 10% lift, a 20% lift? Like what, what's the kind of lift that one game can drive for for Game Pass um, right now, so I'm really curious to see those those uh, numbers when when they start reporting and updating. Uh, but I completely agree with you, Dave, that the big question is is really about churn and retention because in a subscription business, obviously games like this are the tentpoles that pull people in. And you can even look at other companies like Netflix and see that, of course, like in their quarters of their like the biggest tentpole releases like a Stranger things. That's when they get the most subscriber growth, so launches like this are really important, but to the economics of a subscription business, churn and retention is like ultimately like the savior or killer of what you do, and even like pretty um, like marginal differences can add up pretty tremendously over time and impact your LTV and so yeah, it is a huge question of. Uh, you know, whether they can follow up on this game, what the timeline of that can be, and what frequency can they, um, you know, satisfy the same type of gamer that, you know, gets pulled in for a game like Starfield. Um, I have a feeling they'll execute on it okay, probably better than the past, although it won't be perfect. But it is notable how much, like, the churn can vary because, again, like, video games, completely different business from video. But if you look at video a company like Netflix has a call it like 3% monthly churn rate. Um, and that's best in class by far. Like no one, no one is really competing with that except for maybe like cable in the past, which was even better. Um, but you know, as you start going down the list of Disney plus max and you start getting to the paramount pluses and, and the peacocks of, of the world, um, you know, the churn, the monthly churn is more like 8%, 9%. And it's just like not in a position to create value if you're also trying to invest heavily into growing your content. um, And it just leads to to burn. And so it's going to be really important for Xbox Game Pass to, you know, find a way to like really level up its retention. Because going from I don't know what it is now, but if it is going from like 8% to 5%, that's not like a 3% revenue increase. That's like a very heavy compounding effect that greatly impacts the economics per person and what enables Xbox to reinvest um, into future growth and content and such to keep keep the cycle rolling. So um, yeah, that's, that's the big question. The other question in my mind is just like how being on Game Pass will affect the legs of this game. Like, even today, a game like Skyrim is still holding up pretty well in terms of like over a decade later, it still continues to sell and somehow maintain pricing power um, to a decent degree, which is crazy. And, you know, most 99.99% of games will not be able to do what a game like Skyrim has done. Right. Um, and I don't know if Starfield would fall into that same category even, but um It'll be interesting to see how the long-term legs and kind of value driver of this game are different because it's on subscription form versus um, just being able to to buy it outright. And you'll see a mix, but I have a feeling what it'll do is it'll it lowers the barriers to entry, and so people might actually spend more time in a game like Starfield because it's just easier for you know tens of millions of people to try it out over the next decade or so. But it probably won't lead to the same type of revenue long tail that we saw um, from Skyrim. At least it can be directly attributable to that game. So I don't know. I think the the net economics, if I had to guess, it is net negative in this weird hybrid form versus kind of selling more a la carte. But the only thing that would change that is that retention number. If they could increase that retention from their whole system, that is what would make the economics here better. But... Might be, still might be a bit of a far-fetched dream for, for a while. We'll have to see. Okay, Dave, take us home with the final topic. I was curious when you added the topic of Humble Bundle to our docket because I think it might be the first time we've ever discussed this company in depth on the podcast, but very curious. Humble Bundle, what's going on?
3: Uh, for those that are not familiar with uh, the Humble Bundle, uh, basically, they started off as uh, selling a collection of indie titles in, funny enough, a bundle. Um, and have certainly grown a lot over the years. Uh, so they now are a digital storefront uh, where you can get games, books, software, Um and most recently, uh, Alan Patmore has been uh, talking about what the future of, uh, of Humble Bundle looks like. And uh, he did give an interview uh, with Game Developer Magazine during the latest Gamescom, where he talked about some of the ways that uh, Humble Bundle could be going um, in terms of even potentially going as far as acquiring uh, studios. Um, so... Where they have been to this point has really been, uh, you know, supporting uh, game developers most recently, uh, and they've been working on acquiring IP and working with second-party developers to build out that IP. Um, And where they do see things as a a potential extension of where they are these days is actually acquiring studios or acquiring the ability to develop properties uh, internally. Uh, So inside the the humble bundle uh, company, Um, and it really is an interesting uh, you know change for me seeing that evolution of what the company is. You know they started off as a way of being able to help celebrate some really fantastic indie games and be able to bring those out to consumers. To really looking at well, how do we you know go beyond just supporting uh, the indie community, but actually start looking at um, you know. Helping them even by being publishers, helping with funding of titles, and now being able to acquire IP and create games on their own. So for me, it's it's been really interesting to see the growth. Um, now the the humble community, the way um, you know, one of their their big selling point, I think for me personally, is that they look at um, these transactions not just uh, transactions that help support the developer and themselves, but they also support uh, charities around the world. And they've uh, been able to um, contribute over 250, $240 million to charities since uh, 2010. So it's certainly not a small effort on their part. Um, and and they, they really do support some really good charities uh, uh, around the world, I think. So, uh, for me, it'll be interesting to see as they continue, um, do they become a, a larger and larger force for, uh, in terms of building their own games? And how do they uh, continue? You know, is the, the pricing model still the same where uh, people are able to um, pay what they'd like to pay effectively uh, and, and determine you know, how much of what they're paying goes towards charity versus goes towards the, the developer, publisher? Uh, split, um, so I think for me, it's, it's really going to be an interesting to see how they continue to be a uh, a force for good. Um, you know, being able to take the 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 hobby of playing games and making it into something that really supports a lot of people outside of the hobby as well. Um, and I'm really looking forward to see what they're able to do. Uh, they certainly have taken, you know, as they become more and more to the forefront in terms of being uh, a publisher, they're they're taking their own stances. Uh, AI is one of the things that uh, they spoke out about recently and, and making sure that, um, you know, they really are really only going to support uh, ethical use of generative AI. So unless you're able to prove that, you know, your sources are, Well documented, they're clean. Then you know they're going to question as to, you know, why is it that you should be using generative AI inside the projects? Um, But yeah, overall, I'm really looking forward to seeing what they do. I think they've. Uh, they've been working with some uh, really good IP over the last little while, and I expect to, to see that grow over time. Um, and also for me, the good thing is, is that they're not just diving headfirst into it. They are taking a very methodical look at um, who they're partnering up with, with what games and what studios they're partnering uh, and, and trying to bring to the marketplace in that, in that aspect. So um, yeah, I'm hoping for some uh, some. S- slow but solid growth from from the company and interested to see uh, the types of games that they come out with i expect they'd probably still stay within the sort of that indie realm in terms of the games that they're they're going to be building out internally um, but they also do have some great partnerships with some some of the larger players as well so
0: Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode here. On behalf of Maria and Dave, thank you all, as always, for tuning in. We really appreciate all of you. And as a reminder, you can hit us up at podcast at co with any questions or feedback. We always appreciate your emails and comments. But with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up here and catch you next time. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review.